Hey everyone, welcome back to Christ is the Cure. We are continuing the Tulip series. Last week we talked about grace from the Calvinist position. And since I want to finish this series before June, we may double up on episodes in the upcoming weeks um, in order to get through it. So we may do something like Mondays and Fridays. I don't know yet. I'll let you guys know on social media. But let's go ahead and jump into today's topic, which is briefly on conversion and regeneration. And this is going to fall underneath the heading of grace still technically. And then we will move into predestination. I'm not sure if the conversion and regeneration portion will be a long enough to be a standalone episode. So we may bleed into predestination and election in the Arminian view today. So we'll see what happens. So first things first, conversion and regeneration. Um, so we're going to briefly discuss conversion and regeneration in the Arminian and Calvinist frameworks. Um, while Calvinists and Arminians both hold that faith is a gift from God because of texts like Philippians 1.29 and Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, this discussion becomes necessary only because Calvinists and Arminians generally disagree on what is called the ordo salutis. And that term simply means the order of salvation. And so this is why this section may be shorter because we're only going to focus on one aspect because Arminians and Calvinists both agree that faith is a gift and that the one who is converted takes hold of that gift and they're justified by faith. And so aside from irresistible and resistible grace, there's agreement there. What is disagreed on is what comes first logically in terms of conversion. And we're going to talk about that here, but that's surrounding what is called, again, the Ordo Salutis or the Order of Salvation. And since this is a sticking point, it was worth covering. Um, overall, the disagreement between the Arminian and Calvinist position is on whether or not regeneration, that is being born again, right, comes before or after faith. So that's the, that's the disagreement. Which comes first, faith or being born again, or born again or faith? Now, within Calvinism, most Calvinists have historically held that regeneration precedes faith. Now, while that is the majority position there have been throughout church history, who have held that faith comes before regeneration, and in our contemporary setting, uh, two examples of that would be Miller Erickson and Bruce Demarest, and they hold that faith comes first. So Bruce Demarest, in his work, uh, The Cross and Salvation, explains that, quote, most scripture represents saving faith as a condition of God's regenerating work. The notion that God regenerates prior to the sinner's response of faith, chronologically or logically, appears to be biblically unwarranted. The spiritual dynamic that prompts and empowers sinners to convert resides not in regeneration, but in the power of the Spirit's effectual calling, end quote. And Millard Erickson will echo this position, and this isn't limited to them. There were others uh, in earlier Calvinism who held to this, but basically the position is that effectual calling is sufficient to bring one to conversion and have regeneration following the grasping of faith, um, opposed to regeneration needing to come before. And we'll talk about the logic of where Calvinists go whenever they say regeneration precedes faith in a second. But first we need to hone in and say most discussions on the order of salvation focus upon a logical order rather than a chronological order, though some stress chronological aspects to the point where regeneration can occur a significant amount of time prior to faith. So when we're talking about logical order, we mean that logically it comes first, but there's not necessarily a time difference in between them. And if you want to look more into the Order Salutis, you can just Google Order Salutis. I believe that Tim Chalice has a good graphic on that. We're not going to cover all that right now. We're just talking about regeneration and faith. Um, so with all this said, most Calvinists take the position that regeneration comes before faith, 
and many take the position that this is one of the key distinctives between Calvinism and Arminianism, and even Lutheranism from classical Arminians, because Lutherans would articulate traditionally that regeneration causes faith and thus logically precedes it. If you want to learn more about that, Jordan Cooper has a video discussing the question. Um, he argues that they don't really frame it that way, but that logically regeneration comes before because regeneration is the cause of faith. So in Calvinist circles, R.C. Sproul seems to have been the one who popularized the emphasis on the distinction as a key distinction, as he calls regeneration preceding faith a cardinal doctrine of Reformed theology in his book, Chosen by God. Um, Sean Wright in 40 Questions About Calvinism will say the following, and I'm going to quote him at length here. Quote, Calvinist views are significantly different from Arminians. Holding to provenient grace, Arminians deny that God chooses to be gracious to a particular set of individuals. Rather, based on his foreknowledge of who will respond to the gospel, God chooses those future responders. When they repent and believe of their own free will, they are born again. In other words, in Arminianism, faith precedes regeneration. Believing in Christ causes one to be born again. For this reason, Arminians are synergists. They maintain that sinners cooperate with God in the process of salvation. Calvinists believe that because of the utter sinfulness and resulting spiritual inability of humanity, regeneration must precede faith. One is born from above, born by the power of the Holy Spirit, according to John 3, 5 through 8. And then as a result, the person believes in Jesus. For this reason, Calvinists are monergists, that is, those who hold that God is the sole cause of salvation, since sinners are mired in sin. Monergism comports with the Bible's teaching on sin, God's effectious grace, and the relationship between regeneration and faith. End quote. So, um, you notice the, the language there of monergism and synergism. I talked about why I don't think those are helpful in one of our early episodes. You can go look that up. I think it's like one of the first three, actually. Um, but that's where the Calvinist is coming from. So, here one can see that the Calvinist position is concerned about maintaining monergism, and that it is God's work from the beginning to end in bringing a people to salvation. Furthermore, for the Calvinist, if a man is enabled to believe the gospel in a grace that comes before, i.e. prevenient grace, he will still choose sin if he is not given a new heart and an inclination towards God. So ultimately for the Calvinist, if man is left to his own devices and just merely enabled to come to faith, then he will choose sin. Um, so for many Calvinists, placing faith prior to regeneration is a compromise of total depravity or a door to giving credit to man for taking hold of faith, thus affecting his regeneration. Now, texts that are used to support this are found in those texts describing the corruption of man, and particularly 1 John 5, 1. Uh, basically, the argument is that the grammar suggests that regeneration comes First, the text reads that, quote, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So the argument is that those who have believed are those who have already been born again. Without going into that particular grammatical argument itself, Thomas Schreiner's uh, summary is helpful. And uh, Thomas Schreiner actually has an um, article on, Does Regeneration Necessarily Precede Conversion? And you can find this article at ninemarks.org if you want to read it yourself. Uh, I'll put it in the the show notes too. But Tom Schreiner says, no evangelical would say that before we are born again, we must practice righteousness for such a view would teach works righteousness. Nor would we say that we first avoid sinning and then are born of God for such a view would suggest that human work causes us to be born of God. Nor would we say that we first show great love for God and then he causes us to be born again. No, 
It is clear that the practicing of righteousness, avoiding sin, and loving are all the consequences or results of the new birth. But if this is the case, then we must interpret 1 John 5, 1 in the same way. For the structure of the verse is the same as what we find in texts about practicing righteousness in 1 John 2.29, avoiding sin in 1 John 3.9, and loving God in 1 John 4.7. It follows then that 1 John 5.1 teaches that first God grants us new life, and then we believe in Jesus the Christ. And so the bottom line and concern for the Calvinists is that regeneration is ultimately the work of God and not dependent upon a human choice or human activity. As it was stated prior, for most, the issue is of logical order rather than a chronological order. Recognizing that placing regeneration before faith chronologically, even by seconds, would mean that there is a new creature in Christ who is not a believer. So this, again, is a stress on logical, not chronological order. And, and uh, Matt Slick, in flipping the paradigm on faith preceding regeneration, points out that the issue remains for those who place a chronological strain on faith preceding regeneration. He says, quote, if faith precedes regeneration, let's say by five seconds, then we would have someone who is a believer, but is also not regenerate for about five seconds. Do you see the problem? So uh, Matt Slick's overall summary is helpful. And this is from Matt Slick from Karm.org. Does regeneration precede faith or does faith precede regeneration? He says, Arminians assert that we must believe in order to become Christians. And when we become Christians, we are regenerated. Calvinists assert that a person is not able to believe of his own free will because of the doctrine of total depravity, that his free will is a slave of sin. Therefore, in the Calvinist camp, regeneration precedes faith. Each side is with its proponents and opponents, as well as its strengths and weaknesses. However, since I lean towards the Calvinist camp, I hold that regeneration precedes faith, but not in a temporal sense. Let me explain with an illustration. In a light bulb, electricity must be in place in order for light to occur. But it is not true that light must be in place for electricity to occur. The light is dependent upon the electricity, not the other way around. Therefore, electricity is logically first, but not temporally first, because when the electricity is present, light is necessary and simultaneously the result. Likewise, regeneration must be in place in order for believing to occur. When regeneration is in place, faith is the necessary and simultaneous result. Finally, when we say the logical order, we must clarify that it is not an order of temporality, but of logical necessity. So again, he's stressing that it's not about chronology, what occurs in time, but about what happens logically. Um, Arminians will critique this notion of regeneration preceding faith typically with the chronological presentation in mind. Namely, how can one have an individual with spiritual life without faith and thus apart from Christ? Right, So you have a spiritual life without faith and apart from Christ, and that is spiritual life and regeneration, right? Further, it is critiqued that this is placing sanctification before justification, as some Calvinists have plainly stated that regeneration is the beginning of sanctification. Uh, Leroy Fourlines in his work, uh, Classical Arminianism, will state, quote, God cannot perform the act of regeneration, an act of sanctification, in a person before he or she is justified. God can move in with his sanctifying grace only after the guilt problem is satisfied by justification. To think otherwise is to violate the law of non-contradiction. And here it's worth stating that four lines is actually clarifying that we are talking about the logic order instead of the chronological order cannot be violated either. Um, so Arminianism would further point out that the New Testament, the whole of salvation, is by faith, but particularly being children of God and being born is by faith. Um, they would look at texts such as John 1, 12 through 13, while the Calvinists will stress in that same text that being born again is not by the will of man, 
the Arminian will stress that the condition of being made a child of God is, quote, by receiving him, thus placing faith logically prior. And so in summary, um, it is tempting to linger on this issue longer. In fact, I kind of went down a rabbit hole myself when I was reading about the different views. But I think that this is sufficient to at least point out this difference, the typical difference between the two systems. But it needs to be remembered that not all Calvinists today hold that regeneration precedes faith, uh, but most will due to it being stressed as an axiom of the Calvinist position. But that is pointed out to say that you can't just assume that they hold to the typical position. It's worth clarifying before you engage in critiquing a position that they may not hold to. So on this point, um, that is of conversion, Calvinists and Arminian, again, both hold that faith is a gift for man to take hold of. Classical Arminianism hold an agreement with Calvinism also that justification is by faith. The disagreements can be summarized in the following on grace as a whole. First, whether or not uh, special grace, not common grace, whether or not special grace is particular or universal, particular being Calvinist, universal being Arminian, whether or not grace is resistible or irresistible, resistible being Arminian, irresistible being Calvinist, and typically whether or not regeneration precedes or follows faith. Now, this section was a little bit short, so what we may do here is we're going to define predestination and election, and then next week or in the next episode, depending on whether or not we double up schedules, we will talk about the Arminian position on predestination. So let's treat this as a preliminary into the doctrines of predestination and election in the Calvinist and Arminian view, and then... Uh, we will define predestination and election and probably call it an episode for now. So as we move into the waters of predestination and election, we will have to touch upon the subject of foreknowledge again. Whenever I've looked at this doctrine and these two positions, foreknowledge really becomes the key um, because how you view foreknowledge and what the term foreknowledge means in Romans 8 in particular will affect how you view Romans 9, how you view Ephesians 1. And so that is just something to consider. Now, before we go into these topics, I have to stress that we will not touch on every aspect in these discussions. These are big topics. We're going to do our best. What I have decided to do is give you the positive positions for both while trying to minimize critiques of the other position. Sometimes they're necessary to put in there just to to show how they differ, but I'm going to focus on, these are the positive presentations of these views, and then you can go and start comparing and contrasting from there. So I'm going to do my best on that. Um, obviously, my bias will come out at some points. Um, I'm trying to keep it tampered down, but you know, that's just how it goes. So again, we won't be able to touch on every aspect of this vast debate. We will look at key issues and the key text while summarizing how Calvinists and Arminians reason through said issues in text. We won't spend time detailing an exegesis of each text. We will focus on particular texts and just the general view of those texts. And then, like I just said, in the midst of explaining unconditional and conditional election, we're going to have to circle back on how we understand foreknowledge, which we did discuss in our section on human will, simple foreknowledge versus um, forward nation, right? So now that it's been laid out that this is not exhaustive and I give you my approach, um, let's briefly define election and briefly define predestination. And then, um, we'll move into the predestination view in Arminianism in the next episode. So what is election? So to begin, we have to realize that election and predestination are closely tied together. 
Beginning with a simple definition from the pocket theological terms, we read that election is, quote, a biblical word used to speak of God's choosing of individuals or people to bring about God's good purposes. The general term election can refer to God's choosing of persons for a type of service, while in a more particular sense, election refers to God's choosing of a persons to inherit salvation through Jesus Christ. The doctrine of election has been the subject of intense debate, particularly between Calvinist Arminian theologians since the Reformation era. Other theologians, such as Karl Barth, try to avoid the Calvinist Arminian debate by suggesting that God's election is first and foremost an election of Christ rather than an election of individuals to salvation. End quote. And so let's look at an expanded definition from the Holman Bible Dictionary. Um, and I believe this particular article is by Timothy George. And he says that election is defined as the following, God's plan to bring salvation to his people and his world. The doctrine of election is at once one of the most central and one of the most misunderstood teachings of the Bible. At its most basic level, election refers to the purpose or plan of God whereby he has determined to effect his will. Thus, election encompasses the entire range of divine activity from creation. God's decision to bring the world into being out of nothing to the end time the making of a new heaven and earth. The word election itself is derived from a Greek term, which means literally to choose something for oneself. This in turn corresponds with the Hebrew word. The objects of divine selection are the elect ones, a concept found with increasing frequency in later writings of the Old Testament and many places in the New Testament. The Bible also uses other words such as choose, predestined, foreordained, determined, and call to indicate that God has entered into a special relationship with certain individuals and groups through whom he has decided to fulfill his purpose within the history of salvation, end quote. Now, the Holman Bible Dictionary actually helps um, us further by pointing out five major themes in the Old Testament as it pertains to election in relation to Israel specifically. First, election is the result of God's initiative. Um, and it uses an example as Abraham as an example in Genesis 12, 1 through 7. Secondly, the word in Israel's vocabulary for the relationship to God is covenant, which is a bond established by God's unmerited grace. And you can see that in Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 7. And then third, within the covenant community, God selected particular individuals for particular tasks or functions. And you can see that with Aaron, Moses, David, etc. Fourth, Israel's election was an opportunity for service to God, not a pretext for pride. And finally, in the later Old Testament writings, and during the intertestamental period, that is the 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and New Testament, the elect ones are considered the true and faithful remnant in the midst of the people of God, end quote. So here we can see that election has a more broad sense, as well as a more narrow sense, whenever we're talking about predestination and election to salvation. Uh, to quote George in his contribution at length on election in the New Testament, he says, quote, Early Christians saw themselves as heirs of Israel's election, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for its possession in 1 Peter 2.9. Paul treats this theme most extensively, but we should not overlook its central importance for the entire New Testament. Again, certain individuals are singled out as chosen by God, the 12 apostles in Luke 6.13, Peter in Acts 15.7, Paul in Acts 9.15, and Jesus himself in Luke 9.35-23.35. In the Synoptic Gospels, the term elect ones is always set in an eschatological context. That is, the days of tribulation will be shortened, quote, because of the elect whom he chose, end quote. And that's Mark 13, 20. Many of the parables of Jesus, such as the marriage feast in Matthew 22, 1 through 14, and that of the labors of the vineyard in Matthew 21 through 16, 
illustrate the sovereignty of God in salvation. In John, Jesus is the unmistakable mediator of election. Quote, you did not choose me, but I chose you, end quote. And that's uh, John 15, 16a. Again, his followers are those who have been given to him by the Father before the world existed, and not one of them is lost, according to John 17, 5 and 12. Also, in John, the shadow side of election is posed in the person of Judas, quote, the son of destruction, end quote. Though his status as one of the elect is called into question by his betrayal of Christ, not even this act was able to thwart the fulfillment of God's plan of salvation, end quote. And I'm just going to pause right there for a second, just to point out, you may pick up on bias or leanings, um, especially if you already hold to a particular view. So, you know, just try to ignore that, and we're just getting a broad definition to work with before we move in um, to the topics and the different positions. Anyway, so he continues, quote, There are three passages where Paul deals at length with different aspects of the doctrine of election. In the first, Romans 8, 28-29, divine election as presented as the ground and assurance of the Christian hope. Since those whom God has predestined are also called, justified, and glorified, nothing can separate them from the love of God in Christ Jesus. The second passage, that is Romans 9 through 11, is preoccupied with the fact of Israel's rejection of Christ, which, in the purpose of God, has become the occasion for the entrance of the Gentile believers into the covenant. In the third passage, that is Ephesians 1, 1 through 12, Paul pointed to the Christocentric character of election. God has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world. We can refer to this statement as the evangelical center of the doctrine of election. Our election is strictly and solely in Christ. As the eternal Son, He is along with the Father and the Holy Spirit, the electing God. And as the incarnate mediator between God and humankind, He is the elected one. We should never speak a predestination apart from this central truth. End quote. So at this point, several questions begin to form. Does God elect or choose people to service only to salvation or to both? Um, of course, that question was kind of already hinted at in this survey by um, George, and both Calvinists and Arminians will agree on this point, that it's a both and rather than an either or. The big question comes up is, is this election conditional upon one's response to the gospel, or is it unconditional in that God is the one who chooses who will be elected according to his own will without respect for one's potential response or future response to the gospel? Additionally, another question arises, is election corporate, individual, or both? And we'll find agreement in the Calvinist and Arminian circles there too. But essentially that question means, does God elect a class of people, whether those in Christ or Adam, or does he elect people individually? And then the last question is, does God elect people both unto salvation and damnation? So let's briefly define predestination, and I mean very briefly, and then we will stop here, and then next week or the next episode we will talk about election and predestination in Arminianism. So what is predestination? So as it has been stated, predestination and election are closely tied together whenever we talk about election unto salvation. Chad Brand's summary of what predestination is is simple enough. God's purpose and grace directed towards those whom he will ultimately save to the uttermost. The word predestined as a verb with God as a subject is used six times in the New Testament. Acts 4.28, Romans 8.29, 1 Corinthians 2.7, Ephesians 1.5, and Ephesians 1.11. The word means essentially to decide beforehand. Other words that convey a similar idea are to determine, to elect, to foreknow, end quote. So essentially predestination deals with God's sovereign determination. 
And in order to avoid bias in our articulation here, however, I'm going to stop right there and then we'll move into the Arminian position next time. I hope this was helpful to some degree. Please remember that Christ the Cure is subscriber supported and you can join the support team at patreon.com forward slash Christ the Cure. We're trying to get um, our top goal reached. And as a patron, you will get exclusive show notes, including right now 153 pages of the Tulip Series show notes. So you can look at the references and all that on paper. Um, and just as well as other PDFs and some patron exclusive courses and things like that. I, I try to do stuff for my patrons because I really appreciate you guys. But the support team makes all this possible. It makes sharing the documents to the public possible. It makes the time and effort possible. And so prayerfully consider um, becoming a supporter, perhaps committing for just a year with an annual subscription. And, um, you know, do it only if you have prayed about it and if you find Christ Secure as a worthy ministry to support. So until next time, God bless you all and have a wonderful, wonderful week or weekend because I don't know whether or not we are going to have this episode with another episode this week. That's it.